You're listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories, a podcast that celebrates the wisdom, courage, experience, and joy of individuals in the queer community. Every week, we feature a guest who has a remarkable story to tell about their coming out and the life they've lived beyond. Now here's your host, Anne-Marie Zansel. This week on the Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Plus Stories podcast, we are thrilled to feature film and television producer and storyteller Frank McGowan. Trigger warning. Frank's story relates anecdotes from his lived experience that describe homophobic-based violence, physical and mental trauma, and CSA. Listener discretion is advised. Frank McGowan's remarkable life represents a mix of hardships and triumphs. Frank, who was born and raised in North Glasgow, was a sensitive, creative child in a culture that vehemently rejected queer people. Frank's main childhood ally, his mother Eileen, instilled in him a sense of pride that sustained him through dark days of violence and rejection. Frank has emerged from adversity to become an award-winning filmmaker. As executive producer of Bad Pony Media, Frank and his team produce content across all genres for the likes of Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Bra TV in Scotland, which will be available around the world for free from late 2023. Frank tells authentic stories across series drama, factual entertainment, comedy, documentary, and children's programming, and aims to engage, entertain, and inspire. And now, on with the podcast. So my mum had no morning sickness. There was no indication what she'd had with the other boys. I was literally a surprise. I popped out like, hello, world. Um, yeah, and from the beginning, um, they actually didn't think I would survive because I was so premature. They actually, I was in an incubator for a long, long time. There's lots of photos of me um, there. Um, my mum had been a nurse, so she knew the kind of, the nurses were pre- starting to prepare her for me not being able to make it. But lo and behold, thank goodness I did, and I'm here. Uh, and from there, um, my mum had told me stories, you know, about early on about people she'd known through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. And my mum was an Avon lady and she used to sneak the gay men into the back of the church to get their Avon um, and come to the Avon meetings back in the 60s and 70s while she was doing that. Um, She set up a small tea group for um, people who were trans and cross-dressing back in the day who would all come to the house. My dad was like, what the hell is going on? Who are these people? Like, where are all the biscuits? Why do we have no biscuits? Um, So my mum would do these kind of things. So my mum was probably an entrepreneur before there was the word entrepreneur for a woman um, because women weren't allowed to do jobs or anything like that. You had to be, you know, the men done the jobs and the women stayed at home in the 60s and 70s, but my mum was having none of that. So I think that's, I get a lot of that from my mum because I'm very, you know, community involved. I do a lot in the community. I work with people um, locally. I volunteer a lot. My mum done all that. But through that, I think she met a, a lot of people who maybe society had cast aside. And I think my mum saw the signs in me early on that maybe I was going to turn out to be gay because um, you were gay in Glasgow if you were creative or didn't play football or didn't engage in sports activities and I was just not sporty at all the only reason I was at the football was to watch the boys in shorts not because I wanted to actually play football myself but um <laughs> so I, I was literally on the sidelines and I would like you know do things like you know I would sketch the, the team playing and things like that and I would do like murals on the wall I was very into art so there was all the the typical signs that people might say you know my kid might be not normal back then um, and I heard a conversation one day where one of my cousins had actually came round to the house specifically to chat to my mum about having concerns about me playing with my other little cousins um, so my mum was like thinking you know maybe I'd hurt them or hit them or like there was an accident or something and I was upstairs and I remember I can still remember the feeling of the wailings as I held them as I heard this and I just felt so small and hopeless about this because I thought there's something wrong with me um and this is the way people are going to perceive me for the rest of my life but my cousin with no malice had just said look I think he's gay I think there's something wrong with him I think he's going to turn out that way 
Um, and I was about seven, seven or eight. And, you know, I was absolutely heartbroken. And from then on, I actually saw the fear in people's eyes. My other, my friends' parents, um, when I was at their house, um, family members when I was around them, and there was sort of that distancing where they were really cold. And I picked up on that quite early on. Um, but I decided at an early age not to let it get to me because my mum and I had a conversation about it. Um, and it was, I don't remember it verbatim, but it was along the lines of some people have very small minds. You can't please everyone in life. You have to choose what makes you happy and be anything you want to be. And so I went through my, my kind of pre-teen years um, you know, fairly normally um, until I had an accident. And this is a long answer. I'm giving you a long way to answer your question. But um, just to give you a bit of background on it, I had an accident that left me paralysed for two and a half years. A piano fell on me. Um, my dad had brought it into the house. And for, it didn't repair pianos, but for some reason he decided he was going to help fix this piano for the local church. Um, and it was one of these baby grand pianos, really big. And my, my small train had bounced down the stairs into the room. And I went to grab it. And as I went to grab underneath and get my little train, the piano fell on me and it twisted me the wrong way around from the back and fractured my pelvis, um, dislocated um, my legs, uh, broke the lumbar region of my spine, um, damaged various nerve endings. Um, so I was in hospital for two and a half years and I didn't think I was going to walk again. Um, but again, so that kind of took the, the sort of heat off any strangeness that there was to me because I was then the disabled kid not the queer kid, the disabled kid. And so lots of friends came round to me, uh, you know, after school, brought around my homework because um, I couldn't go to school. I had a makeshift bedroom in the living room. Um, but yes, yeah, so when I started to get on my feet and I started to make movies with my dad's best friend's camcorder, um, I noticed, again, a lot of people in the community were really scared of me, not just because I had a camera, but because I was that queer kid. And looking back on it, some of the things that were said to me, some of the things that happened to me, I can't believe that happened to a 10 and 11 year old kid. Because I look at kids now and I'm like, they're so small. Why would an adult do that to a kid? I had one friend, his dad tried to drown me in a swimming pool because I was acting too camp, words to that effect. Um, and I had to calm down. Um, now, I was a, quite an effeminate child. Um, the way I speak now, as a product of years and years and years of trying to fit in, getting on buses, trying not to be noticed, trying not to be seen. Um, because I realised pretty quickly, you can't be gay in this community because you will be shot, you will be stabbed, you will have your head smashed in. Um, I know two people from that time in my life who were openly gay. Um, and I don't mean like stereotype, I mean just people knew they were gay and one of them ended up... Uh, severely disabled um, after a brain injury from being flung off a bridge and another that was killed because um, he was beaten and kicked to death. It's just awful that this was happening in the 90s in Scotland. Um, after 94, there was a lot of discussion because, you know, people realised that it wasn't a mental illness. There was nothing wrong with you. You were gay. Um, but not long after my mum died, I decided, you know, I need help here because my dad was a drinker. Um, he'd always had a problem with alcohol. He was violent and I kind of couldn't deal with it anymore because he would beat me up because of being gay. I was too loud, too effeminate. Um, he didn't like that. He didn't like me very much. He still doesn't to this day. But um, I went to the church for help because I was very involved with the church. I went on Sundays. Um, I was very much part of the church through school. Um, I'd done a lot of video work for the church like for free. Um, so the church was my safe place to go. And I remember telling them that my dad had thrown me out of the house because I was gay. And they shut the door on me. They just shut the door and locked it and left me standing out in the rain. And I was like, wow, this is a big thing. I can never tell anyone again. And I made that choice that night, never to tell anyone again that I was gay or how I felt or that I was that like boys. But that lasted about five minutes because I but I thought I can't do that because number one my mum didn't have a problem with me and you know my mum was honestly was a big value she had and she told me stories about all these really independent men who in hindsight looking back were gay and queer in the community and I thought there's nothing wrong with this it's not a mental illness because it'd been in the news um you know we need, we need to move on from this there's something wrong with these people 
So moving to a new school, I met other people who identified as queer and gay. Still my best friends to this day, who I run the company with, we play in a rock band together. But only through having these friendships and peers to talk to about it, did I ever have the courage to actually tell anyone that I was gay. Because otherwise, I would have totally been on my own. And I can see why people don't say, why people blend in, why people... Um, you know, keep their queer identity to themselves, even maybe not to themselves so far back that it's not even part of them, because it's safer. Uh, you don't get the scrutiny or the hatred that comes with it. There was so many occasions growing up um, where me and my partners or my boyfriends or even just friends because they were friends with me got beat up because I was gay. And I lost so many friends that, well, I won't say lost because I'm still friends with them to this day, but they had to uh, they had to come through the back garden and come climb over the hedges to come into my house to play. They had to wait a certain time at night to come over. We had to talk on little radios secretly without their mum finding out because I was gay. And it's it just it blows my mind to this day that the parents had these attitudes, very old school, very religious field. Um, growing up in a Catholic school, Catholic church, Catholic area, it was so difficult. And, you know, looking back on it, I wish I'd had more support from the adults in my life. Um, I still speak to some family members who are more extended and weren't local. Um, and when I tell them about the way that people acted so complacently, um, there was no sort of, how can I put it? There was no sort of support for me being who I was. And it's not like I was doing anything bad or, you know, my, my neighbours and my nephews and my my not my nephews, sorry, my, my little cousins were out smashing windows and, you know, spray painting walls and they were forgiven for those kind of things. But me being gay, my goodness, that was the end of, I wasn't allowed to even speak to these family members. And I remember the time where I decided to cut contact with my family. It wasn't because of the religion. It wasn't because of, you know, their, their treatment of me. It was when a cousin had actually sexually molested one of my other little cousins who was a baby, she was only two, and that was acceptable, and he was forgiven in their eyes, but I couldn't be gay. And I thought, I don't want anything to do with this family. That is something wrong with their value system. That's something wrong with them. I, and, but I was just as bad. I was seen as just as bad as a child molester because I was gay, and because I was in a relationship with someone that I loved. I was only 13 when I met my first partner. Um, we met at school, and we were together seven years. And that relationship was just not okay. That was not allowed. Um, and, you know, people knew it. Um, we didn't make a point of hiding it. We didn't broadcast it, but we didn't hide it. Um, but the amount of times that we had, I've still got the scars in my head and on the back of my skull. Um, we were beaten almost by an inch of life. I can't tell you how many times by gangs of like 15 and 20 kids who would just attack us. My first boyfriend had his head smashed open with a bottle. And still to this day, he's got some difficulties because of that injury, um, which is just insane. And it's, I just can't imagine being in that world and surviving it now for a kid and how awful that must be. But for me, that was just, just the way it was and managed to get through it. And again, I, I attribute a lot of that to the friends that I had who would be there to defend me. They'd be like, right, we're going to find these boys and go and, go and like batter them back. And I was like, I can't do that. There was like 15 of them because they never done it in one against one. It was always 15 20 against one or two which is just a coward's way um so awful so, um frank my heart just breaks for you that what you experienced and what you survived it really was survived is i just want to validate that it was horrifying what happened and I let you go and talk about it because I think it's important for people to hear that that it's hard for this community a lot of the times. And yeah, absolutely. what I admire about you, despite all the adversity, you remain true to who you are. And I think that your mom, your mom, um, knew who you were from a very young age. Yeah. 
Yeah. And she also had a heart for the community. And to me, I always wonder when somebody has such a big heart for the community, I wonder if they may have been a part of the community themselves, but couldn't come out, you know, because of who they were and where they were and, you know, having four boys. And it was virtually unheard of for women to come out in the seventies and eighties after they got married. Um, And, um, but there were some people that did it, but it sounds like in Scotland, it would have been horrifying. Um, I'm glad you had a mom that let you know that it was okay to be who you are. And thank God you did it because now we get to have your beautiful presence in the world and you also understand. And and I, now I understand why you also have a heart for the disabled community because of your brother. And also, yeah. too, because you've experienced being disabled when you were young, differently abled when you were young. Yeah. yeah. I think it's something that, a story, I haven't actually ever in my adult life spoke about any of this until now. I think it's just because everyone that was there at the time is the same people who are here, so there's been no need to to really speak about it. I've never... I spoke about homophobia in the media and on TV before, but I've never actually told my story before. So it's it's actually, it's been quite cathartic actually to actually say a little bit about it. And, you know, you're right. I think my mum definitely knew about me from an early age. I've always thought that. Um, and while I was talking to you there, I actually recall my mum when I first went to high school and she, she, for some reason, had asked about a girl that I'd met at school and, you know, had asked, you know, was she my girlfriend? anything like that and I had wholeheartedly said oh no like I just had um, an aversion to anyone thinking I had a girlfriend for some reason um it's not nothing wrong with women at all women are great but um you know just sexually not attracted to them and for some reason my reaction to my mum had led her to say you know do you have a boyfriend and she said that just I, I just looked at her and I was like no and she was like well you never know you might meet someone it might be a boy it might be a girl but either way it's okay with me and that was just the end of that conversation. Um, not realising how big that was a point in my life until much later on. And only now I'm just fully recalling the conversation from that time. It was not long after that my mum passed away and it was, it was really, really sudden. Absolutely turned my world upside down. Myself and my brother were basically on our own. And my brother's 20 years older than me. He'll kill me for saying that. <laughs> um, but um, with my brother being older, um, a lot of people look at it, you know, or will you know, he must be my dad or something like that, or, you know, at the time, you know, he must be the one in charge. But um, people in the community as well, I saw the way people looked at my brother for being, you know, differently abled um, and not having the same social cues as other people. And that was the same look I got for being gay. Um, So I've always had this kind of big part of me that if someone in the community is experiencing that kind of reaction from people, I'll always stand up for them. I'm the type of person that I bust off. If I see someone saying or doing something like that or being a bully or being, you know, intolerant, I'll be like, hold you. <laughs> Stop that. Um, your, what, was I think, um, what was your mom's name? Eileen. Ivy? I mean, I'd like to, t- I would love to title this episode Ivy's Boy. Because. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, because I think that What you're talking about, you know, they say in the Trevor Project, which is a big project here in the United States for queer youth, they say if a child has one accepting adult in their life, it makes all the difference in the world. And although you face unbelievably, unbelievable obstacles, I'm surprised you're not in the closet still, um, your your mom gave you, Ivy gave you, she was that. Adult. Oh, sorry, Eileen, Eileen, um, E-I-L-E-E-N. How do you spell it? Uh, E-I-L-E-E-N. Oh, Eileen, that's how we Eileen. say it. Yeah, that's how, yeah, it's, it sounded it's, like you it's said the accent. <laughs> That's the accent. So um, I think Eileen made you who you, I mean, really gave you that acceptance as a queer youth um, that you needed and it probably sustained you. I can only 
As a grief counselor, I can only imagine the grief you and your brother felt when she passed. Um, yeah, it was hard. When somebody dies unexpectedly, especially someone who is a loving presence in our life, it is so unbelievably devastating. And the way you describe where you grew up, I'm sure there wasn't a lot of grief support or anything. It's like, well, she's gone, time to move on. And yeah. yeah. So I would love to like sort of shift the conversation now to talk a little bit about your company, Bad Pony Media. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I think from an early age, I'd always been interested in the behind the scenes of film and TV. Going back to the accident with the piano, because um, my mum wheeled in the big TV from the front room. She had to make a makeshift bedroom downstairs because, you know, I was basically bedridden. I couldn't go outside to play with my friends or do anything I previously had. So she moved in the big TV and it was what I grew up in the 80s. So the TVs were about 300 miles long and the back mm -hmm. of it was about 300 miles long as well with the big backs on them. So, um, yeah, that absolute giant televisions I don't know how she moved it she was so my mum was only four foot two so goodness knows how she moved herself but um so she wheeled it in and I had full access to the television and I used to watch things like you know the cartoons or the late night horror movies and soap operas tv shows of the day and watching these when the credits rolled I always wondered what's a director what's a producer what does an editor do who is the best boy who is the grip what are all these job titles? Why does it take so many people to make a show? Um, you know, how did they do the makeup? How did they do the special effects? How did they do the, the exciting things and the special effects? I was a big fan of the monsters growing up. So I was like, how did they get the head to look flat? How does grandpa change into a bat? You know, these things. And then I saw an episode of the monsters today, which was the 80s reboot of the monsters. And Marilyn, played by Hilary Van Dyke, made a movie about the family. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to make a movie. And so I said that to my mum and dad, and they were like, because well, I wasn't walking again yet. Um, and they didn't think I would. Um, and I'd said to my mum at the time, I can feel my feet. She was like, it's phantom pains. It's you no know, phantom sensations at the doctor. I said, I assured her it was. Um, but over time, um, I managed to convince everyone that I could indeed move my feet a little bit. So I went through rehabilitation over about a year and a half. And my mum said to me, do you know, once you're back on your feet, we'll get you a camcorder, we'll get it, we'll borrow one from your dad's best friend, and you can make that movie. Um, I didn't get back on my feet as quickly as I had hoped I would, but being in a wheelchair, I got some great shots going downhills. I had my friends pushing me up and downhills to get great shots. I was a great dolly to get these shots. And, you know, just working with my friends, we started making films about the people and things that we saw around us. Um, my friend Michelle, she would come up with ideas for scripts. Um, or little films, we'd make them, we'd film them with our best friends around the area, their mums and dads, um, you know, people we knew at school. And we started, you know, doing like parodies of like things like Power Rangers, and, you know, superhero things. And we had a great time doing it. And going into the music industry quite young, when we were 15, when the band formed at school and I became the drummer, the band's still going today. Um, we um, went through the music industry. We had a number one back in 2004. Um, and we saw the behind the scenes of the TV industry, which to me was fascinating because I'd grown up researching it, looking at it, reading books about it. But we realised there was a big problem in the industry. There was hardly any re you know, representation of LGBT people, of people like us. It was always in the soaps, a gay man was stealing someone's husband or opening a hairdresser's or trying on a dress and all these things, which are relevant to the community. These things happen, but it's not a cardboard cut out story, cut and paste every time. There's so many different experiences. So, similar to Martin, Martin Luther King saying this, but I had a dream that um, there was this horse that was talking to me. And it's so strange when I say it out loud, but um, I was stroking the horse's head and talking to it, going, hello, Mr. Horse. And the horse is going, hello, Frank, how are you? And I'm like, I'm fine, Mr. Horse. Um, and the horse is questioning me, why have you and Michelle not set up this production company yet? You've been saying for years you would do it professionally. And I was like, well, there's lots of things in the way. We're so busy. We're on tour with the band. We're looking after my brother. We've got so many things to do. Um, and the horse was like, well, no one's going to do it if you don't. And then the horse kicked me into a pile of shit. <laughs> it back kicked me into this big pile of shit. And as that happened, I woke up 
And then this, that morning I was sent to Michelle, um, who's my co-producer. She fronts band, my best friend. We've lived together for all these years. Um, she said, you know, if we don't start the company, it's true. No one's ever going to do it for us. We need to, you know, have more authentic LGBT stories. You know, we need to do it. We need to make people listen. Um, and we decided that day we were going to go and see the local business advisors and see about setting up a proper production company and doing it, you know, properly. We'd done it for a while, but it was amateur. You know, we'd won a few awards, um, but it was all kind of amateur stuff. And that day when we were sitting in the office, the the lady, uh, Caroline, I remember her name, um, she's no longer with us, but she'd said, what are you going to call the company? And Michelle and I looked at each other and I was like, uh, and she said, Michelle said, what was that dream you had about that that horse, that bad horse? And I was like, no, I think it was a pony. And then we had this discussion about what was a horse and what was a pony and what was the difference. Because we're city folk, we don't see horses or anything like that around, um, not since the 1800s in Glasgow anyway. But um, so it was this conversation about this bad pony, bad horse. And Caroline said, well, that like that name, let's put down bad pony productions. And we've been stuck with it since 2008. So, I love that um, story. I absolutely love that story. It's such a great one. I love how you named your company. I love that dream. And somebody was coming from you somewhere and saying, okay, Frank, you got to tell me, <laughs> you know, you know what, Frank, Absolutely. I'm going to tell you something. You need to tell your story. That's what needs to happen. You need to tell your story about growing up as a young boy in Glasgow and what happened. And you need to, that's a story that needs to be told. I'm just saying that So when you win an Oscar for that, <laughs> you just have to thank me in your acceptance speech. Oh, definitely, definitely. It, it's funny you mention that actually because I've actually um, I've been working on a book for a number of years now. Actually, it started as a short story when I was fifteen, um, and then I developed it into a kind of three chapter story when I was about eighteen or nineteen. Recently, I went back to it, and I'm working on it as part of a planned trilogy. Um, about growing up in Glasgow. It's a fictional set and a fictional character, but the experiences are real. Um, you could say it's emotionally autobiographical, um, mm -hmm. but it's basically about love, friendship, and growing up gay. Um, so I'm hoping to get that um, the first instalment of the book out um, over the next kind of year and a half. I'm looking for a publisher at the moment, but if not, I'll self-publish. Because again, it's a story that, despite the fact that there's a lot of really great Scottish authors telling authentic Scottish stories, it's really different to the one that I've experienced. I think because in a lot of ways I was lucky because there's so many times I could have been killed. Um, I've had guns shot at me. I've had um, the windows smashed in while I was standing at them. We've had bricks thrown at us. Um, I was actually pushed off a bridge as well myself. These things that could kill you, but um, for some reason I'm like a cartoon rabbit. I, I make it through to the next day. Uh, I'm just waiting for that acne safe above my head one day. Or holding a little well, bomb. <laughs> well, you've already had the acne, acne safe film fall on you. That was the tea, that was the piano. So you're like, you're, yeah. <laughs> you know, you um, I literally cartoon rabbit. I'm like, wow. <laughs> well, you're you're the coyote, you know, you keep surviving everything, you know. If you have you ever seen the Warner Brothers cartoon? I think it's Warner Brothers cartoon with the, the Roadrunner and the Coyote. Did that yes. That's who you're Wiley Coyote. You're the coyote, or is it the road runner? The road one runner always survives everything because the coyote is trying to kill the road run runner. I have an I have a speech impediment, so it's hard for me to say two R's back to back. But um, yeah, you are definitely the road runner. So, what is the biggest success of your business right now? I think the biggest success is now going global because we. We started off as a small independent company. We we actually got our first BAFTA nomination while we were still at college. Because after we, we'd done the tour with the band, we decided now we've started the company, we need to learn about the new equipment because everything went from analog to digital while we launched. So it was like, oh crap, we need to learn everything again. So <laughs> we went back to college and done our degree, a three-year degree. Um, and during that, we got nominated for that first BAFTA. And the industry absolutely hated us because people were like, who the hell are these people? Um, you know, we were, we were up against, like, you know, really established filmmakers um, and for a number of awards that we won around that time, people were like, these people aren't really part of our industry. They came from nowhere. They don't have a formal background. They never trained specifically um, in film and TV. And here they are, you know, winning awards in, in the newspapers because there was a period every time we turned over the TV, if it wasn't a rerun of the band on tour, it was an advert for one of their shows or one of their projects on the news. 
And we actually, we found out about the BAFTA by accident. We were sitting down and we were, we, I remember we were eating spaghetti bolognese, one of the only dishes I can cook without the kitchen catching fire. But we'd um, turned over the channel and we heard, it was either Bad Pony Media or Michelle or Frank or whatever it was. And we turned it back over and I went, I think they're talking about us. And there was no, you know, we'd a VHS player back in 2008. There was no skipping back. And I was like, I think they just mentioned us. And then we watched to the end of the news where they played the story and it was us. And But they hadn't got a hold of us to tell us about that we'd won the award. So we were like, oh God, we found out accidentally from the TV. So it was a rush yes. to get to the BAFTAs. Um, but it was so surreal. And again, because we were students, people didn't see it as acceptable that you know students could be in a position of having that sort of relevance in the industry. What, what's so ironic is instead of being like, oh my God, these students won this award, they are super talented. We are gonna mentor them so that they can grow in this business because obviously you had some talent. Yes, you came from nowhere, but because you won the award, you had talent. And I'm so surprised somebody didn't like say, come on, Frank and, and friends, let me take you under my, my wing and I will guide you on how to do this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but no, we've you have to be the first little independence doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with so many people over the years um, who we've knocked on doors, I mean, I'm not afraid I'll knock on, we have a saying in Glasgow, knock on two doors at once, um, or you would get a piece at any door. Um, people say that about me, and like, you know, you would, I would get a glass of milk knocking on any door, that kind of thing. So I'm not afraid to knock on doors and ask questions, but the amount of slammed doors that we had specifically when we said we wanted to focus on LGBT content um, until a certain point I say until about maybe 2012 when people started calling us because we were LGBT and we, we were thrilled we were like my goodness people from like the BBC and other production companies that we'd looked up to were knocking on our doors and I remember one particular conversation with a lady who made the newspapers for ripping off a lot of actors in Scotland um, she um, had called me and said can you come down and discuss casting for this new project? We'd love to have your input. And we were thrilled. And Michelle couldn't make it that day. I can't remember why. So it was just myself and uh, Charlene that had went down. And we were sitting there in this big office and we were really excited. Um, and the lady came in. And at that time, we didn't know she was ripping people off. We just thought she was a head on show of an amazing company. And she sat down and was telling us about this project that they were doing. It was LGBT characters. And, you know, she wanted help from us. Um, and, you know, so we asked, what is it that you thought was would make us really good for this project? Was it, had you seen any of her work? And she was very upfront about the fact that she hadn't seen her work. She had no interest in seeing her work. It was just the fact that for this project to get her funding, she had to hire the gays. And we were absolutely soul destroyed. We were like, oh my God, are you seriously telling us this? And you expect us still to jump on board? And she was like, well, there's a lot of money in this project, um, you know, if you want to see the budgets. And we were like, we politely decline. <laughs> we, we don't want to work in this. You're not asking us because you like our work or you believe in what we stand for. Can you tell us anything about our website or about what we stand for? And she stuttered her way through the conversation and we decided we ain't going down this road. Um, and we left. And we left at that. And thank goodness, because the project stalled and there was thousands of pounds misspent. Um, she ended up in a lot of trouble. Um, so we're glad that we walked away from that one. But again, over the years, we've had people who wanted to work with us, again, to tick a box for funding purposes um, of hiring people from the LGBT community, from the Black and Asian community. Um, no matter what the demographic is, even the disabled community, there's sometimes there's token hires. Um, and that's not really what we're about. Um, most of our team identifies queer, um, neurodiverse, um, having mental health issues. Um, and that's not by design, that just happens to be the talented people we have in our community and in our um, production company, who we've worked with now for 14 plus years, um, just happen to be whoever or whatever they are. And that's the way we like it. We don't like to really make too much of a fuss about it. Don't get me wrong, if someone asks me, or do you have a partner? I'll say, yep, yep, this is my, my fiance, my boyfriend. Um, and the look I get sometimes because I think I'm not gay enough for some people and for some people I'm too gay. So there's no meeting in the middle. So I just try and be me, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Not everyone likes the Glaswegian forwardness. Not everyone likes or can understand what we're saying, which is why I'm so glad you can understand what I'm saying for the podcast, because sometimes the language barrier is there. Um, 
And a lot of people have this idea that, you know, the north of Glasgow, where I'm from, has nothing but drugs and drink and problems. That's true. Yeah, it does. But it's not the only thing that makes Glasgow Glasgow. And it's not the only thing that makes me me. Um, I'm surprised I've never had an addiction issue. I'm surprised I've never turned to drink. It's quite prevalent within my family. Most of my family died of drunk, uh, uh, drink or drugs. Um, and it was quite horrible to hear recently that from my class at school, one of my classes at school, I'm one of the only boys left because all the other ones either died of drink, drugs or suicide. That was so hard to hear. So what I heard in that is that um, one of the successes that you define is that there is a certain ethics about who you want to work with and the stories you want to tell. And just because there is, quote unquote, money involved uh, doesn't mean that's the project you want to work on. And I also hear you saying that because you're so firm in your identity, sometimes it gets frustrating that you get hired just because you're a tick on a box. <laughs> you know, they need an absolutely person and stuff like that. Um, what are your biggest challenges for your business? Uh, you know, it sounds like your successes and challenges are very, very mixed in together. But what are your biggest challenges? That's true. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges um, is having the Scottish stereotype or the Glaswegian stereotype shoved to the side for people to understand that there's a lot more to being Scottish, being Glaswegian, being gay, um, a member of the LGBT community, being disabled. There's much more to these stories. A lot of people think they already know the story. And in judging that, without looking at a script, without looking at a project, they've already decided to pass on it. And these people, I'm including the major broadcasters and the streamers, because um, it's kind of judging a book by its cover. You can't judge a book by its cover unless it's written by Stephen King. And so you look at um, you know, what a Scottish story is, there's almost a, a certain criteria for it. It must be about drug addiction. It must be about crime. It must be about you know, alcoholism. But there's so much, so many stories. Glasgow itself is a merchant city. And we have the merchant city area, which is one of the more affluent areas of Glasgow. The stories are rarely told of how the two meet, um, the north and the kind of um, city centre. And these are the kind of stories we're looking to pursue in the content we make. And it's still a challenge for people to admit that Glasgow has these stories to tell because outside of the stereotype, there is so much going on. There are so many communities, the Chinese community, the Italian community, um, you know, so many people with stories that make them who they are that aren't being told because it doesn't meet the kind of tick boxes again for a certain streamer or a certain broadcaster. Um, for instance, there's a series drama that we worked on back in 2012 um, for a series that we developed called 98%, which we have in pre-production at the moment as an, an independent uh, production. We'd done the pilot for it. And um, when we took it to the one broadcaster, they said, you know, we can't show these stories on television. This is absolutely, it, it's too realistic. It's too realistic. It's too gritty. It's going to scare people. It's going to make people think Glasgow's a certain thing. And then we took it to another broadcaster and they said, absolutely fiction. This doesn't go on in real life. People don't love like this. So we were like, in one sense, one broadcaster said it's too realistic and another said it's too fanciful. We couldn't find the middle ground. Um, we obviously developed the series and kind of took some of the feedback on board to make the characters a little bit more rounded, make it instead of just one episode, spread out the story. Um, and we came back and with test audiences globally, we had such a great response. We actually got Sky to agree to air the episode, the pilot for the series. And the feedback was one of the shows that got 100% feedback on it. Um, especially outside of Scotland, which for us was a big eye-opener. That kind of showed us that the world has an appetite for authentic Scottish stories because no matter what your accent, a lot of people are having the same issues in communities, drugs, alcoholism, you know, uh, knife crime, homophobia, whatever the subject may be. It goes on in a lot of places, not just the deprived areas, not just the affluent places. Everywhere has these little pockets of things that are issues because we're all people just happens to be that we speak in a Scottish accent. And so what we'd done at that time was, which is one of our biggest challenges, was we surveyed, I think it was 10,000 people and asked them 
who was the most famous Scottish person they knew? And, you know, some people said, like, James McAvoy, Sean Connery, um, you know, other people within the Scottish industry. But the biggest one that came up, which was so disappointing for us, was groundskeeper Willie from The Simpsons. Number one, he's not really Scottish. Number two, he's not a real character. He's not a real person. But he was the most known Scottish identity on television globally when we put all the numbers together. And we were like, my goodness, there's so many Scottish actors out there. There's so many shows with Scottish voices. I can't believe that this is all there is. And Can I, can I share an observation with you? Yes. So talk about going internationally. And what I want you to know is that I have no prejudices about Scotland or Edinburgh. Like I know nothing about your community. Like, so I know like within the Scottish community, you know, people know all these things, but internationally people know none of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so like the stories that you're trying to tell, like, like, internationally people I think would just be super interested. And it's like, I like I have no preconceived ideas of what a Scottish person is because I'm not very familiar with the culture. I have no preconceived ideas what Edinburgh is because I have no idea about the city. I mean, I know it's in Scotland and stuff like that. Um, but it's, it's really interesting because I am wondering because all of your people, the people that you work with are from Scotland. And so you all have these preconceived ideas, but once you get outside the borders of your country, none of us know. And that's the thing that's for us quite frustrating additionally, because rarely do Scottish shows get seen outside of Scotland. We've got um, some, some soaps and sitcoms that despite the fact that they are popular internationally, bootleg wise, or illegal download wise have never been commercially successful or released outside of Scotland and it's because people don't think the accent can be understood they think the storylines are too colloquial and because of that it's the big decision makers not doing this and don't get me wrong things like Netflix and Amazon Prime are now changing the game thank goodness but we've been beating this drum since 2010 it's only now that people are starting to listen to us because the streamers are making the broadcasters have to listen which is great, but there's so much content now tied up within red tape and development hell with contracts that could have been seen outside of Scotland but hasn't. We've got a, a soap opera here, which is sort of like the bold and the beautiful, um, uh, except it's in Scotland. It's called River City. Um, it's the Scottish version of you know England's Coronation Street, which uh, or EastEnders, which you might have heard about, and these shows. Um, tell i mean they're softly softly and they're slightly dramatized but it's got great talent behind it it's got great producers and great writers but outside of scotland these shows don't get seen and what we're doing with not just bad Pony media but with the streamers and our new venture which is called bra tv bra being the scottish word for brilliant um is taking these stories and these programs globally because there's nothing more than than I, that I like than watching something from a different part of the world, maybe something that's been shot and filmed in Texas, it's got a lot of um, Texan talent. I mean, I don't relate to all of it, or horse ranches, or whatever may be in the storyline, yeah. but it doesn't mean I can't understand it. And I can definitely yeah. understand the accent. Well, it's so funny too, because you know what? There's something called subtitles that we can all sign and turn on on the TV if yeah. we're having Sometimes when like when my wife and I watch like a uh, like a very heavily accented English show and they're like with the Cockney accent and stuff like that, we'll turn on the subtitles because it makes it so much easier for us to understand. So we're not wasting our time trying to say in our brains going, what did they say? Because once I see it down on the screen, I can hear them saying it. So it's really interesting. In yeah. our with language and stuff so like that like now we can anybody can turn on a subtitle so absolutely yeah and also too, as, as, as a chaplain I was I was trained to listen to people so I have listened to people with all kinds of accents over the years and so um like I I I, I care I, I like um sort of um 
call it one of my superpowers because I'm able to listen and to hear people through the accents that they have. And um, I also, and also too, I find the Scottish accent very charming. So it's really actually a pleasure to hear it. <laughs> talk to you i'm gonna have I to think you're one of the only people i've heard that said that it's absolutely a charming <laughs> accent i love it so um frank I, I have a couple questions to ask you and usually i end this at i usually i i may repurpose this and put this on the coming out and beyond podcast as well because it was such a fascinating okay story. So we might just do do it twice. You don't have to tape it twice. Um, so these are the three questions I ask at the end of coming out and beyond. And I want to ask them for you today to wrap us up. Did you have a coming out song? I did. And it's so embarrassing because it's such an awful song. Um, I can't remember the artist's name, but it was the song I'm Horny, 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 Horny from the 90s. <laughs> um, I love that. Only, be only because my, now it's quite a complicated story that almost sounds like a soap opera storyline, but um, my first boyfriend, um, who I was with for seven years, um, actually his mum and my dad got married in secret without us knowing. And I came home from school one day and he was standing in the living room looking terrified. And I was like, what are you doing here? And he was like, yeah, my mum's moving in. My mum and your dad have got together. And we were absolutely horrified because we'd already been together for four years. And we were like, and no one knew because we hadn't told our parents because we were so young. We were only 13 at the time. So we are 16, 17, haven't explained to our parents yet. You know how you guys are together and you've kept this a secret? We have an even bigger secret to tell you. And so it was so awkward. And then obviously we decided that we couldn't be together. Um, it just wasn't going to work. So he ended up going off to the army. Um, but he had his own secret as well. He was actually, uh, he had a girl pregnant at the time. So yeah, it was very much a, a bold and beautiful storyline, something of that kind. But um, yeah, so that song, only because he sang that to me the whole day, that song, before we told our parents, before the, the, the shit hit the fan base, when we realised that our parents had secretly been in a relationship. I don't know why they decided to keep it a secret. I think it's because, um, again, down to prejudice, my dad was a Catholic. And his mum was a Protestant, and never the twain shall meet. It was, you know, not seen as a positive thing. It feels like my family like, hated my stepmother. Well, and also too, it it feels like it's like it's like you grew up a hundred years ago. You know, when it, I it does feel like that. Yeah, it feels like to me. It, it sounds like you know, even though it was like the nineties, like. It feels like your story to me is some like a boy that grew up in the 50s in, in the United States. You know, it's it's yeah. very interesting. What book or movie that you have seen, read or seen really changed your life? There was two books that come to mind. Um, one, Armistead Maupin, Tales of the City, which I loved. Um, just because the queer relevance of it and those characters and those very different people from very different walks of life who come together under one household um, in Barbary Lane, that for me was my community because there's so many people in my community who were all seen as strange or unusual for very different things. Um, but we all came together because we were strange and unusual for all these different things. Um, that really resonated with me as a, a young teen. I remember I had to sneak the book from the library back home in case anyone saw it and maybe thought, oh God, he's got a book and it's got queer characters in it. That's a red flag. He must be unusual and strange himself. Um, not realising that everyone saw me as that anyway, so they probably went, oh yeah, he's reading that book. Um, and the other book is Holiday with the Fiend by, oh my goodness, I can't remember the author's name. Sheila Lavelle, I think it is. Um, I'll have to check it out. And it's a kid's book, um, and it's about having a best friend who's not of the norm, a little bit difficult, um, maybe in today's society would be diagnosed with ADHD, um, but again, someone who was not of the norm, trying to navigate their way in life. And that was pretty much me as a kid, and I loved the kind of the relevance of the characters, the fact that these characters made no apologies for who they were. They weren't bad people by any means. They were just trying to exist. But to me, it highlighted the world around them where people didn't accept it. And ultimately, the, the issue away with those people, not the person who was a little bit different. 
Um, so they were two books that when I was at school, because I was a big reader, I still am to this day, um, it really kind of, it did change my perspective on the world and actually sharing these stories is so important for LGBT writers to share these stories. Again, which is a, a push to me, I kick up the bum from that metaphorical pony to write the, the book, the next book that I'm working on. And how do you describe your life today? I think definitely happy. I'm probably the happiest I've ever been just because I've got the right people in my life. And that's not all down to external forces. That's down to me having become stronger about the kind of people I allow into my life, not making relationship um, you know, mistakes. I have a train wreck history of partners who I've chosen. I can see you know, other people going, oh, they might be a bit crazy. And I'm like, for some reason, blinkered to the fact that they were, uh, I'd, I'd actually did date a sociopath um, for eight years. Um, but my relationships have always been long-term, but I'm one of these people that I try not to give up in people, even to the point where it's detrimental to myself. And I had to realise through life that, you know, when someone keeps doing something or keeps, like, you know, being a negative impact on you, you have to call it. You can't just make excuses for them. Oh, it's, again, the drugs or the drink or whatever it may be in their life. Um, you have to just say, yeah, that doesn't work for me and that's actually harming me and the people around me. Um, and my partner that I've been with for coming up three and a half years now um, has made me the happiest I've ever been. And it turns out we actually knew each other from years before and we'd crossed paths and never got together for whatever reason um, in McDonald's. Um, but meeting him, which was obviously before COVID, then we had to go through COVID not seeing each other. It really taught me about how to get to know someone and not rush into something. Because I was always looking for a stable relationship. I always wanted that romance that I've seen on the TV or in the Disney movies, but with another boy. Um, and, you know, that just led me to terrible decisions in men, terrible decisions that, thank goodness, is behind me. So, yeah, definitely happy. That is so wonderful to hear. So Frank McGowan from Bad, Me Bad Pony Media, it was so wonderful to talk to you today and hear your story. Keep doing the, keep fighting the good fight, my friend. There is a, um, um, a saying by John Lewis, who's a very famous African-American representative in the United States. And he would talk about getting into good trouble. So keep getting into good trouble and causing people to think because that's what media and that's what shows and TV shows and movies and all those things, they make people think and they also show them a world that they often didn't know existed. So keep fighting the good fight, Frank. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.